Hello and welcome back to Scottish Independence Podcasts. This weekend we were in Glasgow at the invitation of the group Christians for Independence. They had a speaker, Reverend Doug Gay, who gave a fascinating talk. It started off, I thought, oh, this is a sermon. And then it just built and built and built and built and pulled in ideas from everywhere. I really enjoyed it. I mean, I noticed anyway on their website, they'd said, look, the talk's open to you know anyone and everyone and bring whoever you want. So it wasn't just aimed at their members. It wasn't aimed at solely for Christians either. And I did wonder, I thought, oh, I wonder if I'm, what am I going to make of this because it was Christians for Independence not being a Christian. But I, I, mean, I must say for anyone who's now wondering, I wonder if I'll listen to this, listen to it. It's a really good talk. He just draws out a lot of really good examples of where we are, you know, what's happened. I mean, that's a, that's the title of the talk. What just happened, reflecting on what's been a difficult year, to put it mildly. Anyway, here it is. Chaired by Dave Thompson. Well, good afternoon. And it's great to see such a massive crowd with us uh, today. But of course, uh, we're very grateful to Indie Podcasts uh, who are recording this event, a Christians for Independence, talk by the Reverend Gay. But Luke's going to talk about what just happened, reflections on a difficult year. I thought I couldn't speak today without just reflecting on just over nine years ago, and just this week past the, the referendum. And what a brilliant time it was running up to the referendum and then how uh, much of a downer it was when we found that we had just not quite made it. Uh, anyway, hopefully Doug will be able to tell us how we can make it next time and how we can move things forward. Maybe I'm preempting and putting stuff out of his talk that's not there. Doug is um, a reverend doctor. He's a, a bachelor of divinity from the University of Glasgow and he has an MA in modern history and international politics from St Andrews as well. He's a senior lecturer in theology and religious studies at the University of Glasgow and he's also principal of Trinity College Glasgow, which is the Church of Scotland uh, College. Luke's going to draw on New Testament ideas of metanoia uh, and metamorphosis and his reflections on a challenging year for independent supporters and how Christians might react and, and reset. He's a keen independence supporter and he's spoken to us in the past. Just three years ago he helped us launch our little booklet which we have copies of, A Christian Case for Independence as well. He's authored a number of books including books on political theology and, and books to, in relation to independence as well. So without further ado, I'll just introduce you, let Duke uh, and carry on now and give us a talk. Thank you. Thank you. In today's lecture, I want to try and respond to the moment we find ourselves in within Scottish and UK politics. And I'm going to suggest it's a moment in which we should take stock and reflect on how our identity as Christians shapes our involvement in politics. In the past, my own work has focused on the theological ethics of nationalism, so I've been concerned with the vexed questions of how to define nationalism, with what kind of nationalism a Christian could reasonably lend support to. I've written about a doctor, how a doctrine of creation 
and a belief in God as the God of every nation combined with an understanding of the Christian church as an international nation to set out clear limits to the forms of nationalism which Christians can legitimately support. There is no room for ideologies of national superiority or for idolatrous understandings of the nation. The sovereignty of God and the Lordship of Christ transcend every national sovereignty and every earthly power. The love of God embraces every ethnic and national grouping equally. As the scripture says, God has no favourites. As the Puritans used to say, every place is immediate unto God. I was thinking about that this week when some folk from the Highlands were complaining about a Scottish government report which talked about remote places. And they were going, remote from where? We are all children of God, as uh, the scripture says. Daughters of Eve in C.S. Lewis language and Bairnsra Adam in Hamish Henderson's language before we are anything else. So what comes first is always a basic and universal affirmation of humanity as made in the image of God. And with that, for Christians, comes the affirmation that Christ died and rose for people of all nations. Whatever understandings of limited atonement some of us may hold, those limits were never understood in ethnic or national terms. If we begin with these core principles of ecumenical, of Catholic Christian belief, then we rule out in principle all understandings of nationalism which are racist, fascist, ethnocentric, or colonial as abhorrent to God, and I would say as forbidden to Christian disciples. In terms of taking a public political stance in favour of independence for Scotland, my argument over the past, I suppose, three decades now, and especially the past decade, has been that the mainstream of Scottish nationalism, its direction of travel and its record in government, have been compatible, overwhelmingly compatible, with this qualified and internationalist vision of nationalism. In Honey from the Lion in 2014, I argued that subject to these key confessional and ethical conditions, support for nationalism or independence should be treated by Christians as what I called a, a wisdom question. If nations are provisional things which are in process, then it's possible at different points in history to make a case for either a move to unite smaller entities into a larger one, think about the unification of Germany and the unification of Italy, or to seek independence from a larger grouping. To make a case for independence is not to be closed to the reality of interdependence in today's world. I always felt this was a strong and a good slogan to talk about independence within Europe, albeit one that's become much more difficult since uh, the disaster of Brexit. But it's a slogan I would still defend, and it expresses that combination of internationalism and nationalism, of interdependence and independence. So my work as a political theologian has been so far circling around these basic questions, I suppose, of justifying in ethical terms why Christians could support, under certain conditions, uh, a nationalist movement. And I think we've made some progress on these. I wish there was more recognition from, say, some senior Labour folks, such as Gordon Brown and Douglas Alexander, who are also in various ways present in Christian and church conversations about independence. I wish they could be a bit more generous in accepting that such a qualified and limited vision of nationalism, even if they believe it to be unwise and misguided and politically a wrong choice, that it's still a viable, ethically viable and justifiable option. And they don't need to continually speak 
about narrow nationalism. So I stand by that work and by those convictions, but today I want to press on a wee bit further into the political process, into our own involvement in political parties and into political activism and campaigning. It's been common to observe down through the years that when Christians get involved in politics, they should be prepared to get their hands dirty. Some of you, I'm sure, will have heard about that. The French theologian and politician Jacques Ellul wrote a commentary on the books of kings, which of course are books in the Bible which deal a lot with political themes. And they were often referred to by John Calvin and John Knox, amongst others. In 2 Kings chapter 5, there's a story about the Syrian general Naaman, a story that's often used in Sunday schools. And Naaman has been healed of his leprosy after Elisha tells him to wash in the River Jordan. And that was the bit we did in Sunday school. The next part is what Elul writes about, because Naaman's now going home to Syria to worship the God of Israel, and he wants to worship the God of Israel to whom he owes his healing. But one of his duties at home is going to be to accompany the king of Syria into the temple of Rimon. And because the king is elderly, Naaman has to take his arm as he goes into the temple. And so when the king bows down before Rimon, Naaman finds himself. So he has this rather obscure conversation with Elisha where he says, you know, now that I'm worshipping the God of Israel, is this going to be a problem if I end up bowing down when the king bows down? And Elisha gives him a special dispensation. And we don't hear about it anymore. But Elul, who's a very interesting thinker and who was active himself in French politics in the middle of the 20th century, Elul uses this as a kind of parable. In other words, he says, sometimes when you get close to power, when you get arm in arm with power, you are going to end up having to make, be, be, be taken in certain directions which are not necessarily the directions you might choose. You may end up being compromised. You may end up bowing down to things you don't approve of. So it's an intriguing wee story, and I think it's something to the reminder that sometimes when we are politically involved and active, when we exercise power, and especially when we go into government, that may involve us in difficult compromises, in keeping awkward company, in making uncomfortable alliances. But having stopped off in 2 Kings, I want to focus on two other scriptures today, which I think speak to our political involvement. Uh, this is a, a lecture, it's not a sermon, so don't worry, but I had to check when, when I, I had this sudden thought, I'm preaching tomorrow in St Andrews on Jonah, and I suddenly thought, I hope I've, I've printed out the right text for today, and then I thought, if I had to speak at this meeting on uh, throwing someone overboard to save a sinking ship, in, in the course of a storm. That would be an interesting one, but we're not going to Jonah today. Um, I want to talk about two meta words that we find in the New Testament. In Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, first John the Baptist and then Jesus begin their preaching ministry with a call to, and the Greek word, uh, and I'm, I'm using these kind of tongue-in-cheek today. I'm not somebody who tries to show off by using Greek words, but there's a reason for using them. Um, because there's two other Greek words I want to pair them with as well, which are more familiar. But they both begin their ministries with a call to metanoia. Metanoia. It's the word that's often translated into English as repentance. It carries a double sense of change your mind and change your life. 
And then in Romans chapter 12, we get another meta word, metamorphosis, again, a more familiar word in English, which we usually translate as be transformed. And in that verse, it's by the renewal of your nous, of your mind, the Greek word for mind and understanding, uh, which we use in English sometimes. We say, that's somebody show some nous. Um, through a changed and renewed understanding. So Mark, the gospel writer, was using meta before Mark Zuckerberg was, <laughs> as was the Apostle Paul. And these are two key terms in the New Testament through, Christ, through which Christians are enabled to think about discipleship. Discipleship at its simplest being the process of lifelong learning to follow Jesus and to live in the way of Jesus. And our political involvement and our political activism as Christians belongs within our discipleship. Which means that in that, as in our family lives and our working lives, in our political lives, we are called to be people who are learning and changing. The call to be a disciple sets your life in motion. And these two meta words, we broadly have a sense in metanoia of things we move away from. And in metamorphosis, things we move towards. So what are we trying to leave behind and what are we trying to journey towards? It's fair, I think, to say that this has been a difficult year for many supporters of independence, whichever party you belong to. And I'm going to focus my own reflections on the party I belong to, the SNP, but I think they're relevant to other parties too. So I'll leave you to identify where in Alba or any other parties they may hit home. Before Nicola's resignation as First Minister, another Greek word was being thrown around by commentators and opponents. The word hubris. In other words, you know, pride and, and, and having too uh, self-confident a view um, of your own status and your own operation. And it was being applied not just to her, but I think to my party as a whole. We had, it was said, become the new establishment in Scotland. We were becoming arrogant and complacent. The circle of power and consultation was being drawn too narrowly. There was a lack of accountability and transparency. And after her resignation and then her arrest and the famous tent in the garden episode, people quickly threw in the companion word nemesis from Greek tragedy. Hubris leads to nemesis where you get what's coming to you. Pride comes before a fall, or the crude acronym on, on social media, which I'm not going to spell out, F-A-F-O, but you, if you know, you know. Now, I am not going to comment in detail on the case or on questions of guilt of in or innocence, of course, in relation to specific charges. There's still a lot that I find baffling and incongruous about what's happened. If the worst accusations turn into charges and are proven, I will be both deeply disappointed but also genuinely, also genuinely surprised. And of course, there have been both public assertions of innocence alongside leaks from the police and prosecution. So we have to wait for due process. But without prejudging anyone's guilt or innocence, I want to reflect on the broader issues of hubris and nemesis. And I'm speaking as a very minor figure in the SNP, a fringe figure, a, a, an ordinary member. It seems to me that there was something to the general charge of hubris. We had got used to winning. We'd got used to being in power. We had become lax about accountability and we'd become evasive about transparency. 
And some of that has, of course, been admitted to and corrected, and that's on the public record. So there's no contempt of court in saying that. And if the conventional wisdom is that this is the inevitable result of being in power too long, well, I think there are examples from around the world which would back that up. But I also want to think about how, as Christians in politics, we might reflect on whether there's an alternative pathway which politics can take, uh, so that in Paul's terms it's not conformed to the world and to that pattern of hubris and nemesis. So at the heart of the New Testament understanding of discipleship, I want to suggest are these two terms which call us away from hubris and nemesis, and these two meta-words are metanoia and metamorphosis. Now the call to metanoia, to change your mind and then to change your life, is to turn away from what's wrong-headed and wrong-hearted. So that's a call from hubris to humility. As disciples, as learners, there should be a humility about what we know and a recognition that we don't know or understand everything. We need to listen to and learn from others. But there's also something else going on here. To be a disciple is also to learn a humility about ourselves, about our own characters, about our motivations, about our behaviour. In my church, we sometimes use a prayer from the Iona community. I confess that my life and the life of the world are broken by my sin. And our worship is meant to train us in the virtues of humility and honesty, as we practice metanoia. So the politics that we are called to is a repentant politics, one that recognises there are temptations to be resisted and vices to be rejected, but which also recognises that we need grace and that we may need to say sorry and seek forgiveness. Now, those are hard things to practice in politics when your opponents are attacking you and trying to discredit you. Of course they are. But if we neglect them for that reason, then we end up, I think, on this other road too often from hubris to nemesis. The call to metamorphosis is a more positive vision. It's a call to transformation. In Paul's words, it's how we move towards what is good and acceptable. So as disciples, we're not just trying to turn away from what's toxic. We're trying to turn towards what's life-giving what's just and peaceable and joyous and loving. So we're trying to learn how to do politics better, how to be better informed, better behaved. I would say how to be better together, but you might <laughs> misunderstand that. And is this hard to practice also when we're under attack, when we're under stress? Of course it is. When it's easier to cut corners or hide inconvenient truths or demonize our opponents. But if we are not ambitious to set a course into what Stephen Noon calls the politics of love, then we're more likely to end up in the politics of hate and contempt and cynicism. Now, I doubt that so far you disagree with much of what I've said. You may have been saying, well, Doug, your point is that sin is bad and virtue is good. Well, I hope I'm trying to say more than that. But let me move on to try and spell out something of what that might look like of what this meta-politics might look like in Scotland and in the UK today. We have been reminded in this difficult year of the importance of personal integrity. And I'm going to be blunt and say that I'm not a fan of trying to drive a wedge between public and private integrity. It's obviously better to have at least one rather than to have neither. 
And I am aware we all have weaknesses and areas of brokenness and trouble in our own personal lives. But the virtues of honesty, of truth-telling, of consistency, of humility, of kindness and respect for others, of faithfulness, these are areas in which Christians believe in a whole life discipleship, where we need to live these out in both our public and our private lives. And I do think that if someone lies to, deceives and betrays those closest to them in their personal lives, that their public trustworthiness is diminished by that. I think if someone is motivated by personal greed and by a desire to be wealthy, I think their public solidarity will be diminished by that. We are also reminded week by week of the ways in which disagreement can spill over into hatred and enmity and contempt. Social media disinhibits us and gives us free reign to attack and dehumanise one another. Note to self. But there is an important difference between strong language and bad language. There is a political witness in civility, in treating others, especially our opponents, with respect. The scripture calls us to repay no one evil for evil and so far as it depends on us to live peaceably with one another. Personal integrity matters and so does integrity in our public communication and accountability. All political parties in Scotland should publish accurate membership figures and transparently audited accounts. That's a minimum. The growing need for fact-checking sites is something that I think shames our politics. We need to be committed to accountability in the way we present statistics. Think of the famous Liberal Democrat bar charts. When our commitment to spin and damage limitation overtakes our commitment to not bearing false witness, we are in big trouble. Now, of course, party behaviour reflects hostile media billionaire owners, Anglo-centric bias. Those are real problems in UK and Scottish media. But we're now, I think, in a cycle in public life where journalists despise political spin. And because they despise political spin, they attack more and more aggressively in interviews to try and catch people out and find the weak spots. And because politicians know that they're going to be attacked so strongly, they increasingly refuse to give straight answers or to admit to not knowing something or to admit to getting something wrong. So we are creating a vicious spiral of public debate actually in which metanoia is becoming impossible. It's being equated with political naivety. Why would we ever admit ferries have been a disaster when our opponents will ruthlessly weaponise that against us? Why would we admit to having led the public debate over sex-based rights and gender identity in a way that has been short-sighted and socially divisive? If we perpetuate a politics based on never apologise, never explain, then that is the wrong kind of metamorphosis. It's changing our politics into the wrong kind of shapes, not better shapes. And yes, despite the real difficulties, we need to work to reshape politics so that we can look for more areas of common ground. The polarisation of public life and the weaponisation of disagreement is leading us to a place where what we sometimes call bipartisanship is harder and harder to achieve.
Our politics is becoming dominated by a cynicism and a ruthlessness which mean that if we admit to agreeing with or sharing ground with an opponent, we will lose an opportunity to attack them. We urgently need to find more issues where we can cooperate and collaborate. There are important politics areas in Scottish and UK politics where the big challenges in front of us are not primarily ideological and where we should be putting our heads together, not butting our heads together. Let's think social care. Let's think pensions. Let's think support for families with disabilities. Let's think public health approaches to drug deaths. Let's think support for Gaelic. Let's think commissioning and running reliable ferry services. Let's think net zero. Let's think our policy on hydrogen, where I think we're making some big mistakes. Let's think prison reform. We also need to have better conversations about the role of faith in public life. Some of the scrutiny that Kate received was absolutely fair, and I'm sure she fully expected it, but some of it was both ignorant and poisonous. Commentators wrote things about the Free Church which they would never have written about the Roman Catholic Church or about conservative Jews or Muslims who held identical positions on some of the hot-button issues. Think of the iconic photo of the Yusuf family praying in Butte House, which I think was actually a wonderful photograph. If it had been the Forbes family on their knees, it would have been greeted with outrage, cynicism and ridicule by much of our media. And that is not acceptable. It's a form of liberal totalitarianism and nihilism. So when the storm has died down, uh, while the storm has died down for now, we need to go on having the argument about what does a broad-based political party look like in a pluralist society? I was asked during the SNP leadership campaign to write an article for The Times, and some of you may have seen it, and in it I said this. People were dropping the F-bomb, fundamentalist, without much awareness of the breadth of UK evangelicalism and its political differences from United States varieties. As with Roman Catholics, some UK evangelicals are LGB stroke T affirming, others are not. Some are pro-choice, others are not. Some are monarchists, some are republicans. Some are well to the left economically, are committed environmentalists, vegans and pacifists, etc. People's views don't come in simple identikit packages and we should not presume to know where someone stands on all issues. And free church members are not uniform and not always predictable. And we need to show some understanding, I continued, of nuance and complexity. Conservative Christians view adultery as a sin, but they don't want to make it a crime. In some cases, for reasons of self-interest, I suspect. But even without bringing faith into it, ethical judgments and politics can quickly get messy. If person A and person B are both radical socialists, but person A is a pro-life pacifist who affirms trans rights, and person B is a pro-choice, pro-trident, gender-critical feminist, how do you make up your mind? Do you have to have six different parties so that we can only be with the people we agree with on each of those issues? Ethical agreement on religious or non-religious grounds is tolerated to different degrees in different topics. 
So within the SNP, there would be toleration of sharp disagreement on assisted dying, on sex work, on decriminalisation of drugs without people being ostracised. So why are there not other issues on which we can accept a legitimate range of viewpoints? For my party, it has been a difficult year. And in some ways, I think it has also been so for the wider family of Focus Support Independence. But I want to finish on a hopeful note. We have deep resources, I think, in the Christian tradition which can feed our discipleship as political activists, not least our meta-commitments to metanoia and to metamorphosis. I have been inspired this year by the return of Stephen Noon to political conversations in Scotland and by his bold talk of a politics of love. I also agree with him that we need to dream of getting support for yes to 60% and we need to try to embrace a politics that will get us to 60%. I am not naive. I know that will involve compromises to win the centre ground. It will also involve sometimes being tough-minded and resolute and even combative in our campaigning. But let me say this. We want to get to 60% and still be practising a politics which is honest and humble and decent and loving. Those who sell their souls to get into power or to win a referendum will ultimately tend to govern in ways which are soulless. What shall it profit a movement if it gains the whole world and suffers the loss of its soul? So I want to suggest that our response to a difficult year should be reflection. We should reflect on the roads which lead from hubris to nemesis and we should remember that we are called as Christians to walk the road which leads from metanoia to metamorphosis. Thank you very much for your attention. Well, thanks very much for that uh, extremely thought-provoking uh, presentation to us. Does anyone have any questions? I'm just happy to take questions on any of these uh, points. Anyone want to raise a particular issue with them just now? Stephen? I just, that was a great talk. I really enjoyed it. And I think, you know, right, bang on, especially the love and the way we have to be in ethics are more important than our policies, if our position. Uh, I, I couldn't help but be interested in that last thing you said about we need to get to 60%. Do you mean we need to get to 60% before we can do other things or what, what do you mean by that? Okay, I, I think that's a good question. I thought someone would say that. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think that my, my position would be that the rules for an a referendum of independence at, at the moment should be the same as rules for any other referendum. So in other words, if you're the 50% mark, you know, you win the, the, the referendum. I think that independence, when it comes, will have more of a chance of, of um, uniting Scotland if we can build support towards the 60%. So I think we should have that goal as a goal, even though the bar for us remains. So if, if people want to say, you know, um, we can't, you know, in future do anything like Brexit, you know, without getting 60% in, in any other referendum or we can't, you know, whatever else it is. Um, then I think you can have an argument about that. Some other countries in, in the world 
have a higher threshold for constitutional changes than they do for than just a simple majority. Partly because uh, they have this sense that it would be better to have a country where there was a reasonable majority of the people united and things and, and, and not to not to just you know pick your opponent at the post and then say uh, you know, it's probably what happened with Brexit as well, you know, that the, the 48% don't matter and we're going to go ahead as if you didn't matter. So, um, that's how I would nuance that. I think that, you know, while the, while the, the rules for all referenda are, are at 50%, the rules for this one are as well. But even so, I think our aim should not be just to win narrowly, but it should be to get to 60%. Um, and that, and, and I think that that means that um, that has huge implications for people who support independence because it means you've got 30, 35 percent who are absolutely rock solid. John, John um, uh, Curtis said this week that he thinks independence support is still standing at 48 percent. A piece published yesterday on violence in Scotland. So, um, but there's a, there's a core. You know, I don't know, 35%, maybe even 40%. Um, but there are 20% of people in the middle who are the soft supporters or, or, or opponents. And those are the people that you need to win. And just doubling down on your base all the time. Um, uh, and I think that was, you know, rightly actually was one of the things that was aired in the SNP leadership election. Uh, you know, whether the outcome, um, is, is, is the one that will best enable that? I think it's an interesting question, but that sense of uh, who would best enable uh, the party to win a referendum and, and to, to appeal to a, a more centrist block of, of voters. Now that's difficult when you've got a lot of younger supporters who believe in independence as I do because it means you you can work for a more equal Scotland, a Scotland without trying. So if we've got a radical group of people who favour independence because they are radical, then it's hard to both support that dynamic and say, and you know, there's twenty percent in the middle here who in terms of the referendum, you have to try and find ways to reassure them. Is there um, is there a difficulty though for us at the moment support independence insofar as in the UK there's um, there are double standards at play. Westminster, well the current Conservative government has elected on about 42% of the vote with a massive majority of seats and has already dealt with constitutional matters, changing laws, the Scotland Act and various things. So we're fighting in a very unfair fight where they can introduce legislation on anything they wish on a minority vote, whereas where we would be setting a much higher standard ourselves. Um, what would your view be on that? Yeah, and I hear that, and I'm a passionate supporter of proportional representation. I mean, the great irony for the Conservatives in Scotland is that without PR, and they were effectively wiped out. It's proportional representation that's enabled them to rebuild themselves as a political force in the Scottish Parliament. And yet, despite that, you would never know that because it's never publicly acknowledged. Um, and, and one of the things I continually despair of in relation to the Labour Party is 
its refusal to embrace proportional representation. I think it's a cynical, I think it's a politically cynical move, only about self-interest and self-advantage. And uh, uh, but I suppose the only way in which you could defend it is, is you could say that uh, the same rules did apply to the Brexit referendum. And, and you could also look for some international comparisons. Um, the, the danger with the line that you were, you know, you know, and I recognise it, but the danger with that line marking is that that gets your base really fired up and angry, but it also doesn't help to build the broader constituency of support for independence. Um, so, um, I really am a bit more impatient than uh, I just had my seventy-fourth birthday last week and uh, been campaigning for fifty-six years yes. for independence, you know. And it's something I would like to see yeah. <laughs> before I go to meet me. Yes, uh, does anyone else have any follow-up questions or different points or questions? Yeah. Is, is there also a question about um, reaching out to people who don't normally vote and who are disengaged through the political process? So I think you mentioned sort of like 60% and wanting to get some out the middle ground uh, without excluding possibly younger people who wanted a more radical agenda, but is there much thought about those people who are part of Scotland but who are disengaged with the political process, I'm not sure the figures of the stats are off the top of my head for that. For me, I mean, Dave already talked about, you know, looking back to the anniversary of the referendum. For me, what was exciting about the 2014 referendum was how politically engaged, I've never seen anything like it in my lifetime, you know, how politically mobilised and engaged people were. And obviously we had a very high turnout, so I think, you know, from that point of view, that was, that was successful. But I do think that some of the other things I've been speaking about um, today are things that turn people off of politics. And I think parties are, uh, I th well, they think a lot about these things and, and they focus group them or whatever, but I think they are, they are torn between what their advisors are telling them will be effective in mobilizing uh, certain groups at certain times uh, and, and uh, the fact that overall, there is a kind of cynicism about politics, which is switching people off and turning people off. So the people who go, well, it doesn't matter who, who gets in, the ferry's not going to run next week, or, or um, nobody's going to fix the dam in my housing, um, or, or whatever the issue is. Um, and, and so I do think we need some kind of, and, and this is where I think as well as groups like this, we do need groups like Christians in politics, and we need civic groups which try and build, rebuild trust in politics. And as part of that, try and rebuild participation. And, and I think we need to try and create better spaces to have political conversations in our society. Um, sadly, I think political parties, and ironically, are often the worst places to talk about politics. People want to talk about tactics, not politics. Um, and, and again, one of the problems that I think if people are being honest about in my party was that people came to feel that the policy conversation was being held far too tightly near the centre by good people uh, around the former leader. Um, and, and a lot of people commented on that and wrote about that, but I think because, uh, because she was a, a winner, she was extraordinarily successful, extraordinarily popular uh, in terms of politician. I think 
probably that wasn't challenged enough. Um, but um, again, the trouble is that, that maybe there is a kind of nemesis, there is a cost to, do, to, to, to playing it like that. But I think participation is, is a huge issue. And I think parties across the political spectrum should be concerned about that. I'm actually um, managing a research project um, for the University of Glasgow, which is looking at how people in churches relate their faith convictions to their views on the Constitution. And uh, so we're going to be doing meetings around Scotland, uh, all the way up from Perth, and um, starting in Glasgow with a conference on the 7th of October, where Stephen Noonan and Murdo Fraser uh, are, are going to be talking about how they apply their faith to their views of the Constitution. But the aim is um, we're going to try and have more productive, better conversations. Um, I've already had this, there's somebody, there's some Church of Scotland member who's writing green ink letters saying that I can't possibly manage a project like this because I'm far too partisan and, you know, um, uh, and of course it will be scrupulously neutral and even-handed. Um, Partly because again we want to find out. I'm just as interested to know um, uh, how unionists respond uh, to, to these presentations as I am to you know, hearing how independent supporters respond to them. But I think that general idea about how do we have better conversations about politics and encourage more people to participate is a really important one. I wanted to ask about the issue of accountability because I think it, in the wider um, political sphere that's one of the reasons a lot of people aren't engaged with politics any longer because there's this lack of accountability claims are made and found to be uh, wrong, incorrect, um, perhaps deliberately incorrect and nothing happens, there's no accountability and I just wondered how how we can move towards that because it can be seen as a weakness um, in some you mentioned about admitting when something's happened that was wrong or uh, claims were made that were false but that can be seen by others as a, as a weakness and I just wondered how we can move towards that I think it's such an important point and I think that um, I mean there are issues of personal ethics and accountability we're going to need people stand up and, and, and say, I know this is the line to take, as they say, on, on this media show, but I'm not prepared to say something that, that you know, I don't believe to be true, uh, or I'm not going to put out this press release, you know, from party headquarters, which misrepresents these statistics. So th those should be basic issues of integrity in public life, and I think people have got far too elastic about the calculations they make around them. And there's a need to reinforce saying that some of this is about truthfulness and is about honesty. I, I also think though that there are issues about about the media and I'm not a, I'm not a BBC basher, but nor am I somebody who thinks the BBC has got everything right. And, and I don't think they've got everything right during the referendum. And, and I think they, they, they still um, regularly don't get things right. Um, I mean, just, just the basic facts of I'm sure we all shout at the radio, in England, or in England and Wales, over and over again. Now, that's just a dereliction of duty. If you're calling yourself the British Broadcasting Corporation, you've got to be a, a broadcaster for the whole of the UK. And, and the, you know, the famous illustration about 
you know, the both sides you know, that the BBC has done and what does impartiality mean? And I think we're maybe beginning to make some progress on this. Um, but you know, the idea that the job of a journalist is not just to say, well, you know, uh, you see it's dry outside, you know, and you see it's raining. At some point, the job of the journalist is to open the window and say, is it raining outside? You know, and there are there are areas of our public life where that where the both sides and it became ridiculous, I think. And also, I think still the platforming of, of, of um, people from opaquely funded think tanks, you know, th th we, we should be able to move beyond that and to say, no, if we're going to rebuild trust in, in facts and in, in figures, we, we need to fund you know, bodies like the yeah, and trust and, and, and promote, you know, the UK Statistics Authority. We need to have, have more recourse to people who will fact check and, and so people can get away with it. And some of that has to be done through the media because it's, it's, it's very difficult for, for other, other people to do that. Um, but, but again, it's, it's an area where, um, again, it leads to cynicism about politics. Um, and, and we all know when we listen to somebody being interviewed and they're being evasive. Um, and if we give them a free pass because it's our gal or our guy who's, who's doing the evading, then we're colluding in that, you know. Um, but the difficulty is, is say that, that, you know, they say never apologize, never explain. You know, if we turn our politics into that, then it's just a race to the bottom. So at some point we need to have people. Um, and what was interesting, I, I did meet a lot of people who disagreed quite profoundly with Kate Forbes about uh, her views on gay marriage, um, about, uh, about the way she expressed herself on, on certain issues, about her views on, on uh, uh, terminations. Um, but a number of them, and quite a number of them I had, said that they, they felt that she was truthful and honest in the way she presented herself. And I think, I think people were surprised, actually, at the extent to which people, even when they disagreed with someone, the fact that they maybe thought they could trust them because they thought they were telling the truth, that that was, that was uh, a, a virtue for them in politics. Because so many other people, they think, you're just saying anything, you know, to, 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 to toe the party line or to get elected, you know. And, and that kind of cynicism is really corrosive with politics. Thank you. Any other comments or questions or points, Marshall? <clears throat> As Christians for Independence, it's in our sort of statement of aims and beliefs. I mean, there are various reasons for wanting independence, but one of them is that we genuinely believe that various Christian values of providing equal opportunity and compassion and fairness and so on can be better achieved in an independent Scotland. And one of the major things there, there is also um, trying to, you know, how, how can we reconcile having the, the, this, this horrible thing, um, the, this weapon of mass destruction, and uh, which could potentially be used and, and end thousands, millions of lives. Um, and yet we have, out of all the people who are still definite no voters and those who are undecided, a large number of them, or some of them anyway, will be Christians. How can they possibly reconcile that with their consciences, being a unionist and um, supporting things like Trident and not supporting 
on the things that, well, as you say, um, what the SNP government has done so far, it's all been steps in, in the right directions of trying to make life better for everybody. How can it possibly, how do you do it? I think that's a, that's a, that's a great question and I think, I think on the issue of Trident, uh, I, I mean, I'm, I'm completely opposed to Trident and, you know, it's, it's a key part of, of, of the case I would make for independence is having the ability to do that. Again, if I'm being honest, I would say that, that the events of the past two years um, have probably made it a bit easier for multilateralists and a bit harder for people like myself who would be a unilateralist. So I would, I would want to give up nuclear weapons to things wrong in principle to threaten to use them against people. Um, the multilateralist case uh, basically says that the realpolitik is that you have to try and negotiate them away and if you make a unilateral move you could create a more dangerous situation if an opponent behaves in an irrational and immoral way and exploits your weakness. Now, the problem with Russia's war in Ukraine, uh, which was the only state ever to voluntarily give up nuclear weapons. Uh, uh, so I think, I think that people like us who support the removal of Trident on moral grounds need to recognise that the context in which we're making this argument has changed quite significantly in the past two years and we're going to need to take that into account and say, well, well given that this has happened, you know, does that change anything? Um, if it doesn't change anything for me, I might have to understand why for some people, again, who might be wavering on this issue in the middle, um, who might feel it's made them more cautious about it. But um, I, otherwise, I think what we have to, to carry on doing within churches, um, and this is an ecumenical issue, I think you have Baptists and Roman Catholics and Episcopalians and Presbyterians of different sorts, uh, you know, there is very strong opposition to tribe within Christian community in Scotland. I think we just have to keep working at that and, and uh, you know, strengthening our resolve and our conviction. It's been interesting, I teach, I teach at the university and, and I teach a course in political theology and at the end of, every day I've taught the course in the, the final class which is called The End, uh, where we look at ideas in theology about apocalyptic and the end of the world and things like that. And I talk to, to them, you know, as uh, about how when I was their age, you know, most, a lot of them are, you know, in the sort of late teens, early twenties, the thing that kept us awake at night was the, the threat of nuclear holocaust, you know, we thought of that. But when you ask them, what's interesting is the thing that occupies the same space in their mind is climate change and global warming. Um, and it's interesting that I, I think, I would say that a lot of them don't think very much about nuclear weapons because it, it, it seems to have diminished in importance compared to to this issue, so, um, and and I think we need to be careful with this generation. And there are some signs that there are very high levels of anxiety and depression amongst young people growing up, and, and that some of it is related to a sense of um, uh, foreboding about what lies ahead of them, and and and, and that the, there are incredibly threatening horizons uh, in, in the world. 
And, and the danger is, if I, I would like them to be more conscientized about nuclear weapons, but actually, you know, I wonder whether they're carrying about as much as they can cope with some of the time at the moment, and, and they have deep anxieties about this. And so I think we need a politics of love, but I think we also need a politics of hope. Mm. Yeah. yeah, thank you, Joe. Yeah. Any other? Just one. Yeah. So, uh, just as not really just having but uh, you know, I was a careers advisor for many, many years, and you're absolutely right. The level of anxiety is, is going up, and it's it's because yes, it's climate change, but it's also a feeling of that what are the safety nets? Because if I don't make this work, I'm stuck. You know, it's okay if you're from a rich background, but any quality thing, if you're not from that rich background and you don't have those safety nets, then I've got to compete, I've got to compete, I've got to compete, if I don't compete, I'm doomed. And the similarly with the climate change, it's like, well, I can't control this and if we don't sort it. So there's an awful lot of that. Um, and obviously as Christians, we would say, well, you know, you're on the rock and God's, God's hands, and, you know, but people without faith, and people with faith who need to work at this, it's very, very difficult for them. So, yeah, and I think, you know, you're, you're, I'm, old, I'm you know, older than you even, it's amazing, isn't it? And uh, I think you're right, I remember that, you know, you had a binary system of the Russians and the Americans, and us having nuclear weapons was essentially, what's the point? You know, they've got thousands more of this. I do think it's more nuanced now, not that I'm saying I support them, because I don't, but it is more nuanced, I think that's a good point. Yeah. Thanks for that comment, uh, Stephen. Oh, that's fine. Well, I think we've had a, a really good uh, <coughs> talk and uh, discussion at the end of it. Thanks very much indeed for coming along and, and giving us that talk uh, today. I'm sure many others will enjoy listening to you on our website and uh, on Facebook, etc. as well. You've raised a lot of really Interesting points. I've got a number of other things I would like to ask you, but we don't really have time and we'll not keep you any longer. So, could we show our appreciation in the usual manner? Well, how was that? something a little bit different, a different perspective on things. So thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back again next Friday with another Scottish Independence podcast. Bye now.